You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 53. We uh, have been looking at this whole chapter and we're coming to the last bit uh, just now from verse 10. We saw that this is a song of Isaiah and it's split into five stanzas and this is the last stanza. Let's just read it. Isaiah 53, page 740. We'll read from verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors." I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure many of you have, looked at a piece of work that you've done. Maybe you're an artist and you've looked at a piece, a painting and gone, wow, that's just great. Or uh, maybe you've had uh, the experience that I had, uh, not just once, but several times when I made something and I'm not, as I have indicated several times, not all that good with my hands. I stood back and looked and said, oh, that's really good. And then it collapsed. Uh, so... You know, some of you will look at things that you've done and it's, the work, it's good. You've, 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 you've toiled at something and it's something that's really, really good. Well, God, we know, looked at the creation and he saw that it was good. You read Genesis 1. He created uh, the earth. It was good. He created the sun. It was good. He created the animals and the plants. It was good. He created mankind and it was very good. And there's a pleasure in that. We understand that. But we all know that something has gone wrong. To me, it is still an astonishing thing that Freddie Mercury of Queen at Live Aid stood up and sang, if there's a God up above, a God of love. And I was imagining, and I've told many of you this before, but it's just to me, it's still the most incredible thing. I was sitting there going, oh no, he's going to accuse God of having messed up the world. And instead, Mercury sang, then what must he think of the mess that we made of the world that he created? So the world is good, created good. There's so many good things. Human beings are good at one level. There's so many good things in human beings, but it's messed up. I was teaching a group of young free church leaders in our broth this week, and we were talking about culture, and I asked them to identify something in the culture, and it was interesting. Virtually all except one identified something negative, so I went back and said, okay, tell me something good. What's good about Scottish people? And if I did that with you just now, what's good about Dundee? That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Because I'm sure if I said, what's bad about Dundee? Because there's good and bad in everything. If we did that about ourselves, the same thing would apply. So we have this problem 
that we live in a broken world. We live in a confused world. We live in a hurt world. And it seems as though the devil has succeeded in perverting and destroying what God made as good. Well, this song is the answer to that, and this final verse is the answer to that. What was God's will? What did God actually want? It says here, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Why would God want to crush or cause anyone to suffer? Least of all, his own servant, his own son. This is not as the former evangelical Steve Chalk mockingly stated it, cosmic child abuse. This is something that the words here carry this idea, it was the Lord's will to make him sick. Nobody wants to make their child sick. When your child's sick, you're desperate. You would rather be sick than they be sick. So what is, is, is going on here? What is happening? Acts 4 verse 27 says this, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So what we're being told here is not that God was some kind of sadist seeking to inflict punishment and cruelty as, you know, the most appalling of parents sometimes do. Sometimes you get a mother who the language that she uses and the manipulation that she uses with her children, you think, that is from the very pit of hell. How can you do that to your own child? Sometimes you get a father who will abuse and, and neglect their own child, and it's, it is incomprehensible to most of us that that could happen. But this is not what is happening here. What is happening here is we're being told that it was God's will that Jesus should suffer in this way, and especially he should be made, it said, a guilt offering. Now, what was the guilt offering? The guilt offering was the sacrifice which spoke of compensation or satisfaction. It was an animal, either uh, a goat uh, or maybe a sheep without blemish, offered for sacrifice as a means of dealing with sins that you hadn't really meant to commit, a kind of involuntary sins, or sins such as theft and fraud or swearing of false oaths. And the idea was you had to pay back. You've done something wrong, you've got to pay it back. Incidentally, the biblical notion of justice and punishment, I, I kind of wish that our courts would take this up a little bit more. It's not just inflicting people with punishment, and it's not just keeping them out of harm's way, but it's also getting them to pay back for the harm that they have done. And that was the idea with this guilt offering. You had to make restitution. It was applied to offenses against the Lord's holy things and offenses against one's neighbor. But here's the problem. If we bring that into the wider sphere of what humanity has done to God, or let me make it a little bit more personal, of what you have done to God, 
then how do you make recompense for it? How do you atone for it? How do you put it right? How can the justice of God be satisfied? How can it be made up? So, you know what I mean by that, that um, maybe you promise your partner, your friend, or husband, wife, and you say, I'm going to take you out for a meal. Or maybe, no, actually what? You, you go to the kids and you say, look, I'm really going to take you out for a special treat. And then what happens is you get caught up in something else and, something, and, and you miss it. And you come back to them and you say, look, I'm really sorry. Honestly, I'll make it up to you. You come back with a bunch of flowers. That's not enough. That's only a beginning. Um, you know, you eventually, uh, sometimes people can milk that a bit much, can't they? But guilt, you feel really guilty, so you want to make it up. But our trouble is, when we have done things wrong, ultimately they are against, they're against other human beings and they're against ourselves, but we are made in the image of God and therefore they're against God because all sin is ultimately against God. How do we put it right? Ah, go and say a few Hail Marys, that'll be okay. Go to church twice, that'll be fine. Uh, care for the poor, that'll get it all sorted. Fast for 40 days. No. None of that can put it right. How do you atone to a holy God the wrong things that you and I have done? How would God be satisfied? Now, here we're told that God alone knows what is needed and that God alone provides what is needed. The guilt offering is the satisfaction offering. The Lord dies. It was the Lord's will to crush him. His life is made a guilt offering. In other words, it's taken away from him. And yet, like every other guilt offering, he goes on, he will see his offspring. But he sees. He's raised. Instead of death dethroning him, it exalts him. And what we've got in this last verse is the spotlight falling on the servant himself. His suffering, his satisfaction, his knowledge, his righteousness, his rewards. Verse 11 is one of the, most, is one of the greatest statements of atonement theology that's ever been written. So what we're being told here is, what did God want? God wanted to save people. What did God want? He was prepared to give His one and only Son because He loved the world. What does the servant want? What does Christ want? The servant knows what needs to be done. He is the righteous one. He's fully accepted by God. He's appointed by God. He is free from every contagion of sin. Because the trouble with you and I, when we try and you know, pay for our sin, the trouble is we've still got more sin. And it just we, we can't get it. We just can't do it. But Christ comes, identifies with our sin and our need. And he is personally, totally committed to accomplish the task he has given. No one takes his life. He lays it down of his own accord. John 10, verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I delight to do your will, he says. Not my will, but yours be done. And look at the end of verse 10. Beginning of verse 10, it was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer. The end of verse 10, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What does that mean? The greater will of God is not to curse Christ, but to bless his people and to save his people. And he was prepared to pay the price of cursing his own son, of giving his own son, that we might be saved. 
that we might see his will prosper in our lives. It's an extraordinary thing to think about the willing commitment of Jesus Christ to us. We are often willing to do certain things, and sometimes we're unwilling. How many of you will go to work tomorrow, and you are just bouncing in there, determined to work for nothing? You don't care. Not too many of us are like that. How many of us will see children reluctantly clean their rooms, and how many of us will reluctantly do things? It's not, maybe you don't have to be dragged kicking and screaming, but there are many things that we do that there's not a willingness, and especially if that doing it is tough and if it involves suffering. But this is telling us that God was willing to give and that Jesus was willing to be given and to go. Now, it doesn't stop there because it goes on to say what Christ got out of this, this satisfaction offering. He himself gets satisfaction because his work is not finished when he dies. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. When I say not finished, the offering is finished, but the fruit of that offering continues to be shown throughout the ages. He will see his seed. He will see his offspring. If you go back to chapter 49 and verse 19, it says this, though you were ruined and made desolate and your land laid waste, now you'll be too small for your people and those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. Then you will say in your heart, who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? Being a follower of God has never been easy. Being a follower of Jesus Christ has never been easy. And the devil loves to mock. And so in the story of Job, you get the devil appearing before God and saying, well, where's the righteous people on the earth? This earth that you created, where are they? Oh, there's Job. Oh, he's the only one. Well, let's sort him out. Let's test him. And so Job was the only one that could be named. I think the devil kind of has the same attitude today. Where are they? Isn't it pathetic? Look at your people in this land in Scotland. This week, we've had yet another church go against God's word by mocking and, and saying that uh, what God says about marriage, no, forget that, we know better. And the devil's laughing. Look at them. Where are they? So few Christians. It looks as though he has won. And sometimes within ourselves, we can have that feeling. And that's why we need to look away from ourselves and see what Christ has done. Because nowhere did it look more like the devil had won than on the cross. Disciples scattered. Church dead before it was even born. The Son of God failed. A failure in his work. And yet it was the Lord's will. Not Pilate's. Not the Jews, not the Romans, not the devils. It was the Lord's will to crush him. The Lord's will 
to see him go through that because out of it was to come this tremendous life. He sees the ones for whom he died. He sees the great sacrifice for the many. He sees and he's satisfied. Jesus sees his people and he is pleased. The seed in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, there's a promise made that the seed of the woman will triumph over the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman is Jesus. And Jesus sees that. And in the moment of what seems abject defeat, it is the moment of great, great victory. Because death does not keep him. And because he rises, his work is accepted. And his new creation, the new creation which cannot be spoiled. See, the old creation could be. Because the old creation had to have the option of human beings choosing to serve God or not. The new creation, we have chosen to serve God, and so the sin and the consequence of it are completely removed. And Christ sees that, and He is thrilled. I will will prolong His days, it says, stretch out many years, live eternally, Psalm 21, verse 5, through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Do you know why Jesus went to the cross? And do you know what kept him to the cross? Do you know why he stayed nailed to that tree? Why he didn't call 10,000 angels? Because In his mind, he saw you and he saw me. And he knew that out of that most immense suffering, he was going to bring a new creation and new people. And his father would be glorified and he would be glorified with a creation of a people who would freely love him and who could not be spoiled, who could not be corrupted, who could not be turned away. And so he went through all of that, seeing it because of us and because of the glory that would come. Now, I'm going to say how this applies to us in a moment, but I want us to sing again, this time from Psalm 22. Um, I think we've sung all of this psalm over the course of this series, and we'll come to the last bit. We're going to sing verse 26 to 31. The tune is Warrington. And this is, uh, this is the result. This is what Christ saw. Remember this psalm begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at the end of the psalm, it says, it's done, it's completed, it's finished. That's what Christ said on the cross. And this is part of it. The poor will eat and will be filled. It's a great promise that the work of Christ is going to extend throughout the earth, especially uh, to the poor. Let's stand and sing the tune is Warrington. Let's go back to Isaiah 53, and let's think about how this works with us. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. That means by the knowledge of him. In other words, by knowing Christ, that brings us salvation. Christ is the way to the Father. Christ intimately knows the Father. I uh, 
saw an interesting video this week from a Japanese quantum physicist who's a brilliant guy and Nobel Prize winner and all that kind of stuff. And he's produced this, produced this video which talks about this is proof of God. This is how we know God exists. And I, th- I thought it was quite interesting. Didn't understand half of it. But apparently, uh, according to him, God is a mathematician. And if you understand maths, then you have to believe in God. Uh, I, I wonder if they teach that at the university maths department. But I found it quite interesting because whilst that's an interesting philosophical argument, the reason we know God is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can know him. And there's a a word we're going to use, a couple of really great words. One here is just simply the whole idea of justification. What does that mean? It's one of those theological words. It just simply means this, make it right. How do you make it right with God? How can we be made right with God? How can our sins be forgiven? We cannot, no matter how much we try, no matter how much we desire, we cannot justify ourselves before a holy and pure and perfect God. And here's another thing. You can try as many religions as you want, and you can be as religious as you want. Religion is never going to put you right with God. Never. Doesn't happen. We cannot justify ourselves before a holy and pure and perfect God, but the perfect sacrifice of the holy and pure and perfect Christ does. By his knowledge, we are justified. I wish that everyone here could grasp that because you may not yet be a Christian and in your head you're you're thinking back and forward about different ideas and you've got all different thoughts and philosophies and questions and so on. What you just simply need to grasp is you can't make yourself right. Jesus can make you right. Jesus offers to make you right. You come to him. How does this work with us? Identification. Identity is very important, isn't it? Luke 27 verse 37, Christ says this, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yea, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Matthew 26, do you not think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Christ knew these scriptures. It's kind of hard to grasp this, but imagine as a boy in the temple. Imagine as a teenager. Imagine as a young man, as a carpenter with a human mind, reading these scriptures and knowing that they applied to him. It really is quite extraordinary to think of him identifying in that way. It's maybe a bit of a a flippant illustration, but you know the film uh, Spartacus? You know, I am Spartacus, and the bit at the end when they all, if if you haven't seen it, it's kind of like 60 years old or something, so I'm not giving a spoiler here. Um, But, you know, they want to crucify Spartacus, and all the rebels are queuing outside Rome, and the guy comes and says, the governor or this general, who's Spartacus? Just give us Spartacus. 
And Spartacus stands up and begins to say, I think it was Kirk Douglas, wasn't it? I am Spartacus. And then someone else stands up, no, I am Spartacus. No, I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. And they crucified a lot of them. Because identifying with Spartacus, who's going to pay for our sin? Jesus says, I will. I'll be them. I'll identify with them. The king identifies with us. And then the king is like a warrior. I will give him a portion among the great, and he'll divide the spoils with the strong. It's not just that he's with the conquerors. I think the NIV translation has it that way, and so do most translations. But he is the conqueror. John L. Mackay argues it could be translated, I will allot to him the many, and he will divide the strong as booty. His weakness will turn to strength, his dishonor into honor, his defeat into victory. The one who went to the lowest place will be exalted to the highest. He comes as a mighty warrior. It's just an incredible thing. Paul, I'm going to take this off. He bears our iniquities the sins of many. The servant's righteousness is transferred to the many. His perfect substitution leads to perfect sin-bearing, which leads to perfect righteousness for us. I'm going to give you two other words, right? This is like a theology class. I'm sorry about it, but you need to get these words. Justification is really important. Here's another word, expiation. Now, we don't use this in normal conversation, but it's just simply the act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing. And that's what has happened. What Christ has done on the cross, He has absolutely amended for and paid for the sins of every one of His people. Every single sin. If God showed you your sin, not for a minute would you believe that you could ever be forgiven it not for a minute. And that's why this is such extraordinary good news. But there's another word, propitiation. And that means satisfaction. It means that God's anger against injustice is satisfied in Christ alone. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. We don't want a God who's angry against sin. Really? The child who's raped and abused, and you don't want a God who's angry about that? A world in which a billion people are starving, and you don't want a God who's angry about that? You want a God who says, oh, it's okay, don't, don't worry. Everything's cool. What kind of God would that be? Of course, He's going to be angry. The world He created good, and when it's perverted and destroyed, you would get angry, wouldn't you? You paint a beautiful picture, and someone comes along and throws something at it, well, just magnify that a billion times, and you have some awareness of how God feels. So, how can the wrath of God be satisfied? We sing the song sometimes, In Christ Alone. You know, the devil hates the teaching about the cross. So, there's a church in America, the Presbyterian Church, USA, 
They asked Townend and Getty, can we remove the line or the verse that says, the wrath of God was satisfied? And Townend and Getty said, no, you can't. You can't use our song if you take that line out of it. So they, they, they scrapped the song. Rather than sing about the wrath of God being satisfied, they found that so offensive that they wanted it removed. And yet it's just so much the heart of the Christian gospel. You see, the PCUSA are probably of the view, well, how could God be angry with us? How could God be dissatisfied with us? But he is. We're his enemies. You say, oh, no, 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 that's not, not, not the God I believe in. Yeah, but the God you believe in doesn't exist. I'm talking about the real God. I'm talking about the God who created us. I'm talking about the God of justice and the God of love and the God of mercy. I'm talking about the God who cares what happens to this world and to us. The death of Christ is the only way that satisfaction can be found. How can God look upon me as sinless? How can God look upon me as he looks upon his own son? As pure and spotless and clean, forgiven, healed, because Christ came and bore it all. He took it all. Not done, though. He poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. Intercession is to introduce someone into someone's presence, a go-between, not a barrier, but a bridge. I was trying to think of somebody famous I really know that you might like to meet that I only have access to. I couldn't think of anyone really. But um, imagine if the queen and I were best buds. Well, we are. And you say, you know, I'd really like to have a chat with the queen. Now, you can write emails. You can do whatever you want. But I could come and say, look, me and Liz, we're like that. Um, come on, I'll take you down. And I go down to Buckingham Palace and the guards go, hey, Dave, how you doing? Come on in. Bring in whoever you want. You know, I mean, I, I get you access right into the queen. She comes in, says, yeah, uh, prime minister, can you hang on a minute? Dave's here to see me and he's brought a friend, you know. <laughs> you could, I'm dreaming, okay, but imagine that. Well, that's what's being told of here. See, people want to go to God, and they say, I'll go through priests, and I'll go through bishops, and I'll go through ministers, and I'll go through gurus, and I'll go through demigods, and I'll go through idols, and I'll go through this. And the answer is, no, no, you don't have to. I remember a, a Catholic doctor I knew very well, uh, and really, really liked him. We got on well, and we were talking about this one time, and he said to me, David, why don't you pray to God through the saints and Mary? And I said, well, why should I when I've got the main man? And that's, that, that's it. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. The servant comes to stands with us so that once he's carried our, our sin, he can introduce us and bring us to God. Here am I in the children God has given me. Here am I. These are mine. Father, these are mine and they are yours. Hebrews 7 says this, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, not like Aaron, not like the other priests who all died, but he lives forever. Therefore, he is able to save completely, and I love the old translation, to the uttermost, 
those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Occasionally, someone will come to the door here during the week and they'll say, can I talk to you? And they don't want money. They're just in a lot of trouble. And they say, please, can you pray for me? And of course, I'll pray for them. But you know, the best thing that they can ever grasp is that they don't need to come to this building and talk to a priest as they usually perceive it to get someone to pray for them, they can go to Christ and Christ stands with them and Christ prays for them. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That is true. But all of us are sinners. But the prayer of Christ for you, that's extraordinary. Jesus is on my side. Jesus is my intercessor. One man puts it this way, This song teaches us we stray as sheep and we return as children. Just a phenomenal difference. Now, I think this is a great picture of Christ. Even in these few verses, he is the wise one. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the servant. He is the sufferer. He is the conqueror. He is the intercessor. He is the channel of God's grace to sinners. In him, the holiness and mercy and justice and love of God are perfectly reconciled. He is the key to God's plan for the world. He is the one that you need. No wonder in heaven the angels cry, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. God looked and he saw it was good. The world was good. Humanity was very good. And then it got all screwed up. But God didn't have an afterthought. He knew what was going to happen. He prepared this marvelous plan beforehand, so much so that when this plan is revealed, the angels wonder. And the Bible just falls over itself in describing how great God's plan of salvation is. The trees of the field clap their hands. The whole creation groans as in childbirth because of the suffering and sin in this world. The skies are crying, and yet they groan longing for the redemption to be revealed in the last days when suddenly the curtain is drawn back and all creation gets to see the Lord has done it and he has done it well. It is good. The angels sing, the Father sings, the Trinity sings, the church sings. We're not afraid. We don't think, what happens if I get cancer? Or what happens if the political situation implodes? What happens with this? What happens with that? We know that our God is sovereign and that our God is control and that he has provided full atonement for every one of our sins and for all the consequences of those sins. And that means like Job, we can say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That even the most ugly and horrible and bad thing that happens to us, we can say all things work for the good of those who love God. Why? Because he loved us this much, as shown in this song. Now, at the end of it all, you have a choice how you think about these things. You can say... I am going to believe that all human beings are basically good and the whole world is basically good and that the seas are made of lemonade and everything's fantastic. And all you can do with that is go home, 
lock yourself in your room and watch Disney films. But it's not real, and you know it's not real. Because outside your door, there'll be people starving. There'll be people suffering. There'll be a world that's being polluted. You can go home and you can say, the world's just rubbish. And you can give up. And you can drink yourself to death. Literally, drink yourself to death. I've known people do that. Or find some other way to anesthetize the suffering within you and the suffering that you see out with you. You can go home and you can say, I'm going to change the world. That was me when I was 13, 14 years old. Sounds so arrogant, doesn't it? I really believed I could change the world. I'm going to change the world. The world's not fair. I'm going to change it. Until the truth that Tolstoy observed struck home to me. That everyone thinks of changing the world and no one thinks of changing themselves. And how difficult it is to change yourself. And you give up. Or, I guess, you can try religion. You can try politics. You can try lots of different things. And I'm just telling you that none of them will ever, ever work. Or, you can believe what's been told here. That there is a good, perfect, holy, just, righteous God. Who sees the evil in the world and hates it more than you hate it. And yet, who has done something about it. By sending his son so that there will be a new creation, a recreation. And he invites you to be part of it. And you can basically say, you can have your own spiritual referendum. You can say, I'm in or I'm out. And that's the choice that God gives you. And I'm just saying to you, please, please don't reject the offer of Christ and the beauty of Christ. For me, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it's all I've got. You understand that along with him graciously comes all things, but without him, family, health, food, wealth, everything, it's worthless in a broken world with a broken heart and broken people. But with Christ, it is invaluable. God gives us his richest gift. You cannot receive a greater gift. Please receive it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a magnificent, magnificent picture of Jesus. The one who's so broken and bruised and battered. The one who cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and triumphed over sin and death and hell and now stands at the right hand of God and invites us to him. Lord, may the seed of your work on the cross continue to flourish within us. And may none of us reject it. We come to you 
as broken people seeking your wholeness. Amen. We're going to finish by singing, I think, a very appropriate hymn. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne, while heaven's eternal anthem drowns, all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died to be your Savior and your matchless King through all eternity. Let's stand and sing, and please remain standing for the benediction. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.